Please turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. We will read beginning at verse 15 to the end of the chapter. As for our continuation in Zechariah, expect that to come probably either the last Sunday in January or the first in February. If you want to be reading ahead as we continue, we've come to that section in Zechariah. Remember, we were doing that prior to the Christmas break in Zechariah chapter 9 through 14, which, um, which forms um, a unit that I will explain when we, when we come to it in, uh, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But for this morning, Hebrews 9, beginning with chapter 15. Before reading God's Word, let us bow in His presence. Gracious God and Father, we pray that those who minister the Word in this place will preach as dying men to dying men, that there would always be about us that weight of eternity, that we would long to control our lives and our decisions and our homemaking and our care of our children and our workplaces, that we may glorify the one who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. And this morning we pray that we will have eyes to see something of the the grandeur and wonder of the atonement and the perfection of Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice who can save sinners from our sins, our awful hell-deserving sins. Hear our prayer. Meet us here in this word through the power of thy spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. We begin at verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9. This is the Word of God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. people of God, God was pleased to accept his son's sacrifice for sin. And all we must do to know Christ as Savior is to receive him in faith, the one who atoned for the sins of sinners. Christ is our only hope. There is no other for the forgiveness of sins because only he is offered up as the perfect sacrifice for sins. And that's the point of our text, the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. Enter into this theme of the perfect sacrifice with me in this text. He offered himself as the perfect mediator. That's first, the perfect mediator. We read in verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What a blessed word is this word mediator. And had we time to survey all that is said about this in the book of Hebrews and what is said in other places in the word of God about this, we at least would come away with these themes. He had the work to perform of obeying the law of God in our stead who broke that law. And as is stressed here in this passage, suffering for our guilt. We read in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He is the only one who could deal with our guilt-ridden consciences and remove our guilt in the presence of God. And to be the mediator, the only mediator between God and man, he must be God. He is the God-man, two natures, Godhood and manhood, perfectly united in his one person, and he must be man. He must be God. He must be man. Why man? Because man fell into sin. Man's sin must be punished in human nature. And we have the fuller assurance also of his sympathy, his omnipotent sympathy as one who has entered into this world as a human in order to die for our sins. Why must he be God? Because his work as mediator could not have been done without the divine nature. This is essential. He must have the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. And he could never have borne the wrath of God were he not sustained by his own omnipotence. And only as God could his human sufferings have infinite value. 
and as intercessor, he must have divine attributes to carry out his task. You begin to see, oh, what a treasure is found even in that one word, mediator, as we find it here in verse 15. But also this one who is our perfect mediator ratified a perfect covenant. That's the second thing we see. And this is found especially in verses 16 through 20, but also it has been alluded to in other places. For example, in chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And how is this new covenant enacted on better promises than that of the old? It was through the ratification, the shedding of his own precious blood. So as the types and shadows of the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices and all that was found in the tabernacle and later in the temple, they were imperfect, pointing ahead to the perfect fulfillment of these things in Christ Jesus our Lord. There must be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. All who were called by God both prior to and after the death of Christ are saved through that once for all perfect sacrifice through His shed blood. Old Testament sacrifices found their value in that once for all shed blood of Jesus Christ. Old Testament believers were redeemed from debt to God's law by the cross according to verse 15. And so when verse 15 references eternal inheritance, it pointed the Old Testament believer beyond his own time to the time of fulfillment in Christ when all of the types and shadows would be completely ratified, the covenant ratified and completely fulfilled. So that all called by God, Old Testament and New Testament believers are saved by Christ's shed efficacious blood. And we see the power of that blood in verses 16 and 17. Now in these verses, there is an understanding in our translation that the blood of Christ ratifies this New Testament. And there is in the ESV, the NIV, and most of the modern translations, and even in the older translations, uh, this understanding of the text. For you see, the term covenant and the term will in Greek is the same term. And the ESV translates both covenant and will according to the way in which they think it best fits the context as a wordplay to illustrate a point. Property is bequeathed by an owner, but the inheritors have no title to the property until the owner, the testator, dies. And so in the new covenant, the death of the testator is necessary for the saints to inherit the promised inheritance. But I think that that's not the correct way to view the text. If you translate diatheke, the term that can be translated covenant or testament, if you translate it covenant all the way through the text, which I think it should be, then we see the writer pointing to the way in which covenants were made in the ancient Near East and the way in which covenants were made and confirmed in the Bible. In chapter 9, verse 17, literally translated reads, a covenant confirmed over dead bodies. And certainly for many of us, immediately coming to mind will be Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham divides the animals 
in pieces, all but the birds, and it was a bloody mess. And God, in the darkness of night, comes through as a burning fire, saying essentially, if I do not keep this covenant of grace that I have made with you, may the covenant curses fall upon me. And so the point seems to be here that the death is required in order to confirm the covenant, and the death in this case is the death of Christ himself. So that in verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, and fulfilling Christ has died in our stead, taking upon himself all of the covenant curses that belong to us because we have broken and violated God's covenant. All of the covenant curses have fallen on Christ Jesus the Lord so that when you trust in Christ, there remains no covenant curse for he bore them all. So the covenant, this bond in blood sovereignly administered as Palmer Robertson Uh, so well puts it, is for one of us, is for us one of complete, utter, pure grace. Do you give thought to the truth and reality that what for you is completely grace, no work added, received by faith alone, was earned by Jesus Christ through work, through good work, through the best work, through the complete obedience to God the Father for the law that we broke, for the paying of the penalty of the broken covenant, the debt being paid by Him. What is for you pure grace was for Him earned in His work of active and passive obedience. So the shedding of blood is necessary for the establishment of the new covenant. And as we go on in verses 18 through 20, we see references to Exodus 24 and other passages as well. But here in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, we are told almost everything in the old covenant, in the tabernacle and temple, were sprinkled with blood. And it is that thought, that truth, that reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is referencing when he reflects the language of Exodus 24 and establishing the Lord's Supper. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. What folly then to turn from him who shed blood establishes saving relationship with God. The only way that you can have a saving relationship with God is through His shed blood. What complete and utter folly to turn from Him and to turn to dead works of your own. And there is in this passage the recognition in verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And only through Christ's blood could the wrath of God be propitiated. Only through Christ's blood could we be redeemed. Only through Christ's blood could our guilt be removed. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ could we be reconciled to God. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Have you trusted in this only mediator who has inaugurated and ratified this new covenant, this relationship with God, 
Only through His shed blood can you have a relationship with the Father. But as we look at the perfection of the atoning work of Christ in this passage, we also see the perfect presentation, the perfect presentation. And we read of this in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, maybe the Hebrew Christians to whom this sermon epistle was being written, because the temple was still standing then, we have evidence of that in the book of Hebrews, perhaps they were so inclined to return to those old dark ways that the Hebrew Christians whom the sermon epistle was written were unimpressed with the heavenly high priestly work of Christ. They're thinking in worldly terms, they're thinking in carnal terms, but the importance of his work in heaven for us is based upon his perfect sacrifice on Calvary. And this finished work is presented now for us by our heavenly high priest in heaven. This finished work is presented in the true tabernacle of which the earthly was but a copy. The tabernacle and temple speaks of the copies of heavenly things were purified by these rites, that is, rites that required the sprinkling of blood. But this pointed ahead to the greater reality of the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, our mediator, and through his shed blood, the heavenly things themselves are purified with better sacrifices than these, verse 23. And this is a profound but simple way of saying that the blood of Christ opens the way to God and provides our approach and gives us free access, fulfilling all that was pointed to by the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Christ entered heaven itself as our representative. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. James Henley Thornwell said it so beautifully and powerfully. The imperfection which attaches to our performances, our pollution and weakness and unbelief, stop with the high priest. His intercession and atonement cover all defects, and we are faultless and complete in him. The prayer which reaches the ear of the Almighty is from him and not from us, and must be as prevalent as is worth. Here is our confidence, not only that Jesus died, but that Jesus lives that he is our intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary and there presents, enforces, and sanctifies the religious worship on earth. Here is our confidence that in the whole process of salvation, God regards the Redeemer and not us and deals out blessings according to his estimate of Christ. Here is our confidence that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What an encouragement to prayer and praise 
and how you and I, believers, should thank God that He deals out His blessings from on high according to His estimate of the worth of Christ and His sacrifice for our sins, and not according to what we were outside of Him. But we also find in this text the perfect conclusion. And by this I mean the conclusion of our sin problem. In verses 25 and 26, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here we have, I say, the perfect conclusion, the conclusion to our sin problem. For the text stresses the once-for-all aspect of the sacrifice of Jesus, which contrasts with the Day of Atonement in which once per year the high priest entered into the most holy place to through sacrifices that pointed ahead once per year to offer a sacrifice that pointed ahead to the final once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So his once offering of himself dealt with sin forever, and there are no repeated offerings. There is no repeated sacrifice. There is no repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus in a sacrament. It is once for all. God sent his son once at the end of the ages, we are told. The ritual of the old economy could only point forward to the sacrifice of Christ. Once for all, at the end of the ages, he sacrificed himself, or as we read in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last times. So that the cross of Jesus Christ is, is the ultimate fulfillment. It is the climactic event of redemptive history with his resurrection from the dead. And so far as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system is concerned in the beginning of the new covenant era, an exchange was necessary for the sinner's salvation. So that it is tragic, utterly tragic, indeed deadly, that the church today in many places, even churches calling themselves evangelical, in many places and instances no longer stress or even believe in the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Our salvation depends upon the sacrifice of himself by which he put away sin, and that once for all, verse 26 says, and upon which basis he intercedes for us. Yes, I say, this text presents a perfect conclusion once for all, to our sin problem, it is finished. And even though you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to morally struggle with with the, the remnants of sin and temptation in our lives, yet as it relates to our relationship to God, the sacrifice of Himself, once for all, has put away sin so that we are justified in the presence of a holy and righteous God. But what would this be without the perfect verdict 
And of that verdict, we read in verses 26 and 27, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he is offered, he appeared once for the end of the, at, for, for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. The putting away of sin, the debt is paid. Don't you find the expression, the putting away of sin, to be utterly amazing? When we consider that we were completely depraved, utterly sinful, condemned by the righteous law of God, he, through his sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of himself, has put away sin. The debt is paid. Do you hear me? Do you hear God speaking through this text? The debt is paid. The debt is paid once and for all. The debt is paid once and for all and forever. The debt is paid, I tell you. He left nothing done. It is finished, he cried. And the law could not do this. The law shows the need. But it could never deliver. The law condemns, but it cannot save. No, no, for this, an exchange was necessary, which is the whole point of what is being presented here about his once for all offering of himself for our sins. So that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is to say, by means of exchange, my sin placed upon him, my guilt upon him, his perfect righteousness, his perfect record placed upon those who trust in Christ alone. Now, it's been many a time that I've used the illustration, but there, I don't know from where it comes even, but it's certainly something to contemplate and remember, and especially for the children of the church to, to take into consideration that when you're in a prairie fire, so I'm told, if you burn a certain area out before the, before the roaring fire arrives, you can stand in the circle that has already been burned and the fire will go around you. Thank God that's where we stand as believers in Christ. Because the wrath of God that is surely coming and is already manifested in this world, that wrath of God that is surely coming when Jesus comes again, those who trust in Christ have in Him already had the removal of that wrath, and we stand in the circle of the covenant of grace, having trusted in Christ, that covenant ratified by blood, so that the wrath of God will have nothing to do with you. Stand where the ground was already scorched, people of God. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Spurgeon was right when he said the whole gospel was hung on the cross. It was all there, the battle and the victory, the price and the purchase, the doom and the deliverance, the cross and the crown. So what about you? Take away the vicarious suffering of Jesus, Christ in my place. 
take away Christ's substitutionary atonement, his shed blood for sinners, take away his wrath-bearing, the satisfaction of the wrath of God once for all, and there is no gospel to preach. And you fall back into your own works righteousness and you will be lost forever. There is no salvation to be had in the presence of a holy God, but in that place that he has ordained for all who believe in him, that place of complete safety when his wrath comes because he has removed it in the cross. And so in verse 27, you notice that there's an analogy. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. It is appointed for man once to die And after that, the judgment. Now, it does not mean the judgment immediately. It's saying that there is an appointed time where each of us will die, and there will come, after that, the judgment day. There is no more hope for those who who turn from Christ. There is no other gospel that will be heard after that. It is appointed once for man to die, and after this, the judgment. Man dies once and there is judgment. But the analogy is this. Christ died once and there is the salvation of his people. Why? For all who believe the condemnatory judgment is done. It is removed. So he, the suffering servant who bore the sins of many, accomplished this for his people And as I preach this wonderful gospel this morning, I will use the words of Philip Hughes who said, to refuse the cross as the instrument of salvation is to choose it as the instrument of judgment. To on that day have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, what what addition to the judgment of fallen sinners to have heard that there was an atonement sufficient for any sinner, and yet you were careless and did did not betake yourself to it by faith. The cross secured God's favorable verdict, worthy is the Lamb, and there is only one way that your guilt can be removed and that you can be received as righteous in God's holy court. Have you placed your trust in Christ alone as the Savior of sinners? So you see, not only do we have this wonderful analogy in verse 27, appointed once for men to die, after this the judgment, but Christ died once in their salvation for all who know him. But verse 27 also tells you why you need the perfect sacrifice. Doesn't it? Why? Because it is appointed once for every one of us to die. And after this, the judgment. Listen to Robert Louis Dabney as he speaks of the sense that we all have, born in original sin, of this ominous judgment to come and what death will mean. And he says... Under a right moral government, punishment, either personal or vicarious, 
must follow guilt invariably. This is what it's meant by that, what is meant by that fear of death which is present both instinctive and rational in every human consciousness. Some men die calmly under the delusions of agnosticism, universalism, or utter weariness of life. Some, like the skeptic David Hume, effect before company a cheerful indifference which they are far from feeling. But the average, the natural, and the reasonable state of the human spirit, which is not sustained by a conscious justification through Christ's vicarious righteousness, is to dread death because it expects penal evil, that is punishment for sin, penal evil in the other life. Why this dread and expectation? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And this is the final judgment of the guilty conscience against itself in that the most In that most honest hour, when the approach of death, that most potent, wise, and eloquent teacher, has dissipated the deceitful illusions of life and compelled the soul to face the truth. Now, that's what I've been praying for as we come to this part of the sermon this morning, that someone by the Spirit of God would be faced, compelled to face the truth and no longer to live an illusion, thinking that all is well with your soul when it is not, if you have not trusted in Christ. Here is the moral fact. The day of judgment is coming and must come because God is the infinite holy God. And when the moral law will condemn every unbeliever before the bar of divine justice, where will you be on that day? To whom will you point as your only mediator? Will you point to your works, your philosophy? Will you say, I didn't know? Will you say, I didn't give it much attention? Will you say, I had this fear all of my life? And I never betook myself to Jesus Christ and his cross. So that you will stand before God on that day completely unmasked. All the cobwebs upon which you now lean will be removed. And your mind on that day will be overpowered by the memory that I heard that preacher on the 15th of January, 2023. And he told me on that Sunday morning that there was only one perfect sacrifice for sin. He told me that there is only one redeemer of sinners, only one mediator between God and man. He told me that there is only one way to escape this dread of death and the judgment that is to come. He read a verse that said, it is appointed for me to die, and after this, the judgment. He told me that on January 15. And you will remember that your heart preferred what your conscience condemned. But what I'm praying for is that that will not be your end, and that everyone under my charge or in the hearing of my voice 
will hear the voice of Christ and hear the Savior calling in this text, come unto me and rest. Come unto me and find your perfect sacrifice for sins. Trust in me as the only mediator between God and man. Trust in me alone, it's by faith alone, and you are safe and secure forever. But there's one other thing about the perfection of the atonement that we find in this text. Just to remind us, we have seen the perfect mediator this morning. We have seen the perfect covenant this morning. We have seen the perfect presentation of his atoning work in heaven. We have seen the perfect conclusion, this once for all end of our sin problem. We have seen the perfect verdict, putting away of sin. And now we see the perfect display, the perfect display. Let's read again verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because you see that's already been dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So how glad the old covenant people of God were when after the high priest made sacrifice for atonement, he would emerge from the tabernacle having accomplished his task and his presence evinced that the sacrifice had been accepted. When we see Jesus Christ, it will evince before the whole universe that his sacrifice has been accepted. Christ has shed his blood, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and has now taken the efficacy of his atonement before his heavenly Father on the behalf of his people as our great intercessor, and he will emerge from the heavenly precincts, the most holy place, and with what joy shall his people greet him on the day of his coming. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'll begin with verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 1.5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We will marvel when we see him. We will glorify him when we see him. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus intercedes, and according to the last verse of this chapter, Jesus will come a second time. Jesus came the first time to bear our sins, he will return to receive his reward. 
the first time he bowed under the awful burden of the cross, when he returns, the world will bow to him. He came the first time to inaugurate the new covenant. He will return to consummate the new covenant. He came the first time as the man of sorrows. He comes again to laugh with his people in their triumph. Do you understand then why the text says his people eagerly await him? Do you? Do you eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ, your great high priest? And only those who know that their sins are forgiven through Jesus' blood can possibly eagerly await, eagerly expect the return of Jesus Christ. So the text teaches three essential appearances of Jesus. In verse 26, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And on that basis of his once for all sacrifice, our Savior entered heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then, at the time appointed, he will emerge from heaven and will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. And as the high priest of Israel came out of the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to bless the people of God, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So Christ will come out of heaven to bless us on that day. I have personal correspondence with an elderly minister, older than I am, an elderly minister in the north of Scotland. And in a recent email exchange, he said to me, what shall I say when I see the Lord Jesus for the first time? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What will you say when you see the Lord Jesus See his face for the first time. Well, my dear Scottish Presbyterian friend said, this is what I'll say. There is no word of gratitude. There is no word of gratitude big enough to thank one who is God for suffering hell pains for a poor sinner. That's the perfect sacrifice. Amen. Amen.